Have you ever noticed, have you ever wondered why there are so many mean Christians? I mean, really, mean-spirited people who profess to be Christians and attend church regularly and even serve as pastors. Welcome to this episode of The Unhappy Christian. My name is Dr. Rick Peterson. I am your host for this series of podcasts in which we talk about moving away from counterfeit Christianity and the toxic spirituality that it produces and back into the green pastures of healthy, joyful spirituality of the authentic Christian faith. I have noticed throughout the decades that there are just a lot of mean people, and a lot of those mean people are Christians. Even in Bible college and seminary, I was struck by the number of my professors who were bigoted, who were sarcastic, who were um, unkind to their students, unkind in their speaking of other professors. Uh, and then, of course, there's the casual conversations with with other Christians where they are speaking unkindly and treating other people unkindly. And yet they profess to be Christians and they get up every Sunday morning and, and go down to the local church and, and sit in the pews and clap and sing and, and put a little money into the offering plate, come home on Monday morning to begin their meanness all over again. It's, um, it's one of the tragedies of modern Christianity. Now, I say that, but it's really nothing modern about it. It's been going on since the beginning, since Cain and Abel, two, two brothers who sought to worship the Lord together, and one's sacrifice was acceptable, the other's wasn't, and so the one who was not accepted killed the one who was. So there's always been this, this phenomenon of the uh, person who's seeking to profess God, profess Christ, in our case as Christians, and still their behavior towards other Christians and indeed toward other people is, is despicable. It's, it's really shocking at times. Why is this? Why does this occur? What can we do about it? And how do we get away from it? How do we just plain get away from it? Well, first of all, you've heard me say in previous episodes, uh, I've described to you the Protestant quadrant. The Protestant quadrant the of half-truths. The liberalism in one corner, charismania in the other corner, dispensationalism and hyper-Calvinism in the other corner. This this. Protestant quadrant in which um, there are systems that have been imposed upon the text of Scripture, teachings, doctrines of men that have eclipsed the Word of God. And I told you that what they produce in these systems are half-truths. It sounds like Christianity. It looks like Christianity. They use a lot of Christian ease. They use a lot of Christian symbols, and they may have a lot of his historicity to it. They may be dating themselves back to the Reformation. But the people involved in it are sometimes just downright unkind. 
I won't bore you with the number of times I've ran into people who were just mean and said mean things to myself or to other people around me, and, and I've always been stunned by that. I listened to a man on YouTube one time bemoan this fact and say that it was the hardest part of, of maintaining his faith was trying to reconcile why there was this phenomenon of people with whom he sought fellowship who were just rude, obnoxious, unkind, sarcastic people. He, he had a hard time reconciling that. And I would suggest that we can't reconcile it. Because within the Protestant quadrant, those systems only produce half-Christians. Because they only espouse half-truths. Half-truths cannot produce genuine Christians. It can only produce half-Christians. Now, what do I mean by a half-Christian? A half-Christian is somebody who makes an open profession of faith in Christ but absolutely lacks any Christ-like character in their life. Let me say that again. A half-Christian is somebody who openly professes faith in Christ and yet displays no Christ-like character in their life. Now, I'm not saying that we all have to look for perfect conformity to the image of Christ. We all stumble in many ways. We all say and do things at times that are contrary to Christ's character in us. But when we do, if we're healthy, we, we acknowledge it. We seek forgiveness. We seek to make amends for our behavior. So I'm not talking about that normal, normal way of living in a Christian life. No, I'm talking about people who are find that it's even funny to be sarcastic, to be bigoted, or to make comments that are biting and hard-edged, unkind, smug, self-righteous. And yet, there they are, sitting in the pew next to you on Sunday. So this Protestant quadrant is part of the problem. When, when people are uh, seeking to identify with Christ on the basis of a system instead of on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. They're not genuine Christians. The other problem is, is that the Protestant doctrine of faith alone has been so perverted beyond what Luther intended it to be that it sometimes means to some people faith in faith. In other words, they don't have an object to their faith. They believe it's their faith that saves them. They don't see faith as a gift of God. They see faith as something that they brought to the table and that their faith itself saves them instead of faith in the one who saves. You see the distinction? It is an important distinction. So faith without Christ-likeness is what I'm talking about. People who profess faith and have no Christ-like character. Now this stands in contrast to the New Testament witness. For example, in Galatians 5.6, let me turn there real quick. Paul speaks of faith 
in this context as being contrary to the works of the law. And he says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Now let me, let me read that one more time. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Now the issue here in Corinth, excuse me, in Galatia, of course, was the fact that that Jewish Christians had come in and began to tell these new Gentile converts who had been authentically converted, who had been regenerated by the Spirit through the hearing of the gospel, had had an experience with the Spirit, were even witnessing miracles among them. That these Jewish Christians came up from Jerusalem and said, you know. If you're really going to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew. You have to begin to adopt Jewish identity markers, and especially circumcision for the men. And then, of course, it graduates into uh, observing Sabbaths and feast days and, and all the other Jewish identity markers. And you need to do these things in order to be truly saved. Well, Paul said no. No, that's, that, that's not the gospel. The gospel is of a universal redemption. And I don't mean every person that's ever lived. I mean a universal beyond race, beyond gender, beyond class. That the gospel's intention is to bring redemption to humanity, not just to the Jews, but to Gentile also. And therefore, the common denominator has to be that the Jew and the Gentile are equally disadvantaged in sin and equally advantaged in the gospel, apart from other Jewish identity markers. Now, where Protestantism gets in trouble is it cuts this text short in practice, for it would read in many Protestant circles, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith, period. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, but faith working through love. That's the core point he's making, is that the, the identity marker of the genuine Christian is the indwelling presence of the Spirit as his presence, as the presence of God is manifested in the character of the Christian. What matters is faith working through love. In other words, quite clearly, faith that doesn't express itself in love is not faith. It's some fleshly religious endeavor. Paul often greeted the uh, letters, the saints he wrote in his letters, by saying how grateful he was to hear of their faith in the Lord Jesus. But he also added, and your love for all the saints. Let me turn that to that. That's the Colossians, I believe. Colossians chapter 1. 
He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. That's e, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. So we see that faith without love is not authentic faith. Faith without love is not saving faith. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 2, verse 3, that we have purified our hearts by faith, and that was evidenced by our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Purified our hearts by faith. Let me read that. 1 Peter 1, 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere Love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. You see the pattern here. It is the clear New Testament witness that we are not saved by faith alone, meaning a faith that is devoid of transformation. A faith that stands by itself without producing Christ-like character. To say that we're saved by faith alone, that is in fact uh, an abstract understanding of faith, is contrary to Luther's understanding of faith alone. It's contrary to the original point, and it's a perversion of the Reformation doctrine. We are justified by faith, apart from any works that we bring to the table. There's nothing that we can contribute to our own acceptance with God, except faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the point. Now, faith is a gift, and it's the gift of God imparted into our hearts at regeneration through the work of the Spirit. The regeneration or the birthing of the Spirit in our lives. And that regeneration precedes faith simply because it's regeneration, the work of the Spirit, that produces faith. Faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 1 through 8, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 1 through 8, will explain that. So faith must be accompanied by love to be authentic faith, to be saving faith. Nowhere does the New Testament teach that we are simply saved by faith, period. When I say period, I mean a faith that is devoid of character, devoid or powerless to change us. But that perversion of faith has become very common within evangelicalism. In our attempt, especially within dispensationalism, in our attempt to not place any obstacles before someone getting saved, quote, end quote, 
we have adopted a version and understanding of faith that is really a perversion of faith. And it's not benign. It is, it is toxic. So faith, genuine faith, genuine Christianity produces Christ-like character as evidenced by love. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul speaks of the spiritual gifts and how important they are in the work of the church, in the ministry of the saints to one another. And it's no accident that in the middle of that, those chapters, those three chapters, is 1 Corinthians 13, which is often referred to as the love chapter. What Paul is saying there is that your spiritual gifts mean nothing if they're not accompanied by love. In fact, it's love that validates, gives credibility to a person's um, spiritual gifts. And yet, I can go on Facebook page after Facebook page after website after website and hear seemingly gifted people and, and read of, of theologians or, or theolo the, theological students who are arguing with each other and calling each other names. Idiot. You're stupid. And, and, they, and, <laughs> and they really believe that they are genuine students of Christian theology? I've had it happen to me. I disagreed with a man one time on a, on a Facebook page with something he was saying, and he said, you, sir, are an idiot. <laughs> I mean, and the words get worse. So you're, you're so right in your theology? You're so doctrinally sound that it gives you license to be mean, spirited, unkind, rude, harsh, toxic, to assassinate me with your words? That's some sound doctrine you got going on there. I, I think if we think this through, we begin to realize it, don't we? That this is the majority of Christians that we meet. There are a lot of authentic Christians in the world. There's just not a lot of them in Western culture. <laughs> They're just not easy. They don't come in bunches, folks. It's hard to find a godly person it's hard to find somebody who will love you as he or she professes to love Christ and yet Jesus made this central to his instructions to the disciples in the upper room this is my commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you in 1 John in the letter of first epistle of John, he makes it quite clear that we know that we have passed from death into life because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on to 
state the negative as well. That if someone says they love God and hates their brother, they're a liar. And the truth is not in them. So this is a serious issue. Your profession of faith, let me put it this way, your profession of faith is only as credible as your ability and your commitment to love other Christians especially, to love people in general. Christianity without love is no Christianity at all. So faith without love is not saving faith. It is not spirit-imparted faith. Listen, there's no accident. It is no accident that the fruit of the Spirit within community is begins with love. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith, self-control. Love heads the list. But you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. I have I have I must tell you that I have pain in my heart that's been there for 20, 30 years. Just remembering how some brothers or sisters have spoken to me in the past. I uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. In the sixties and seventies I was into sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I, and I knew that I was hanging out with people who would steal your billfold and help you look for it. I was hanging out with guys who would steal your girlfriend and then pretend he didn't. Men and women that you couldn't trust. That was the nature of that group. I was pleased when I discovered the Christian community, because I did meet authentic Christians. And I was pleased to be able to have sweet, genuine fellowship and form uh, meaningful relationships with Christians who were genuinely in love with the Lord and, and shared that love with me. But I was equally astonished at the numbers of Christians, the majority of Christians that I met, that were actually no different at all when you got beyond the surface of those people that I were was playing music with in the rock and roll days, getting loaded with, doing all the things that you do in that environment. I mean, I expect it in that environment. I mean, if you, you get involved with secular rock and roll, and back in those days especially, you, you just kind of expect it. You didn't expect a lot of virtue to be floating around. But you do expect it in the church. You do expect it in the Christian community. But it's dangerous to expect it. I guess what I'm saying to you is it's dangerous to enter community into the Christian community without very sharp discernment and very healthy boundaries. Much of the wounding that I've experienced within the Christian community is because of naivete. 
I went into a Christian community thinking, well, these people are Christians and I'm safe with them. And it turned out that wasn't the case at all. I got my heart broke one time in high school with a girl that I was uh, fond of and I had known for a while and was dating for a while. And, and uh, one day I pulled up to get some gas and her car pulled up along next to me and I was very excited about that. I looked over and to see her and there she was sitting almost on the lap of another guy that I knew to be a Christian <laughs> and had even spent time worshiping together in certain churches. She was wearing his little cross around her neck. <laughs> and he knew, he knew that she had been uh, dating me. <laughs> so both of them didn't really care how it affected me. That was devastating. That was my, I, I think that was really my first genuine experience of betrayal at the hands of a Christian brother and sister. Of course, I don't know if she was a Christian or not, but looking back, but that's irrelevant. The point is, that was my, that was my first experience that a Christian brother, or at least somebody who professed to be a Christian, could do something that would inflict great harm on me. So these are things we need to be aware of. We need to understand that there are mean Christians in the world. Not everybody who professes to be a Christian is to be trusted. Quite on the contrary. We are to exercise discernment. We are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We are to have healthy boundaries with all people. And we are to be real, realize that there are a lot of counterfeit Christians not just in the cults, not just in places where we'd expect to find them, but in the pew sitting right next to you or in the pulpit looking down at you. I've been doing this counseling work for a long time and I spent a lot of time working with people who have suffered spiritual abuse, uh, cult-like activities, clerical abuse, and it doesn't surprise me anymore. It, it always bothers me. It always hurts me, grieves me, but it doesn't surprise me. So what's the solution? What, what do we do about this? Well, it's important, first of all, to not bite on the devil's bait. His bait is to say, look what this person did to you, or look what this group did to you, or look what this pastor did to you. Clearly, Christianity is wrong. Clearly, Christianity is untrue. That's the devil's goal. That's why he strategically plants people like this in churches and in the Christian community to discredit the gospel to wound the faith of authentic Christians. So, we must not let that happen. We must not say, well, because these people are like that, 
all Christians are like that. First of all, that's a very, that would be very frankly, that would be a very childish response because it's simply not true. It would be a very childish way of protecting ourselves. But we must be discerning and we must have good boundaries. And we must understand that this is the nature of the battle between counterfeit Christianity and genuine Christian faith. And that counterfeit Christians are going to act and think and treat you just like the world does. And so we read that, of course, in 2 Timothy 3, where Paul says that in these last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, he says. Not lovers of God or lovers of you, but lovers of self, and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. And he goes on with this long list of character defects. People that look and think and act just like the world, but make a profession of faith. And he concludes in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. The New English translation says, who maintain a, a, an appearance of religion, but have repudiated its power. And then he says, avoid such people as these. So that's what we do. We don't bite on the devil's bait. We don't say, well, this is just shows that Christianity is not true, because that's a lie. That, it's a lie in itself. The old saying, just because a mouse is in a cookie jar doesn't make it a cookie. And just because a person is in the church or in the Christian community doesn't make them a Christian. And if you run into a toxic, mean-spirited person who believes, professes to be a Christian, don't be shocked, don't even be hurt. Just avoid them. You are not under obligation to fellowship with toxic people. You are not under obligation to submit to a, an elder board who could care less about your soul or a pastor who's teaching falsehood or worse yet is active in some kind of sexual misconduct. Avoid them. Selfish ambition Pride, arrogance, mean-spirited behavior. You have no obligation, just because they call themselves Christians, to fellowship with that. Another thing we can do is we can examine ourselves. How am I doing that? How am I doing that? One of the most ominous things that we do is examine ourselves to be certain that we are making progress in Christ-like character. Remember, God's paramount purpose in your life is to conform you into the image of His Son in thought, word, and deed. And if the love of God and the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, is not being shown forth in your character, then take a look at that. 
Consider the obstacles that you might be putting in your own way. People pay attention to what Christians do. And that's good if we're functioning. But it's horrific if we're not. So examine yourself. Consider, you know, how am I doing that? Can I be more mindful of how I'm loving people in the name of Jesus? Am I being Christ into the community, whether it's at the mailbox or the water cooler or wherever you are? And then lastly, I would suggest you pray for fellowship. Pray for healthy fellowship with people who love you as they love the Lord. People who will not only make a profession of faith in the Lord, but will love you in his name. That's not saying that they might not hurt you or they may not say something that's harsh or unkind, but they will always seek forgiveness. A true brother or sister in Christ will want to make amends for any action or word that harms you, as we should for them. So, to be a mean Christian is to be no Christian at all. And it's time, folks, that we begin to call that out. We begin to separate and avoid people who are chronically toxic, chronically mean, chronically sarcastic. There are, and there have been in the past, and there are today, and there will be in the future, celebrity pastors who think they have the right, because of their celebrity, to talk in ways that are just abhorrent. Or to treat people who oppose them with rage. Avoid them. Get away from them. And then examine yourself to see if you're doing any of that. And then pray for fellowship with people who love you as they love the Lord. You know, we don't need to be a member of a 3,000-member church to find fellowship. Jesus had three members in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Think of that. What does that tell us? Of course, there were the other uh, others as well. There were the other nine. But even Judas, he said, was a devil. But his most intimate fellowship he had with Peter, James, and John. So we don't have to be a member of, of a thousands. Just, just uh, we don't have to go on, on Facebook and pretend we have 2,500 friends. What we really need is, is a half a dozen people in our life. And if you're a couple, if you're married, maybe three or four other couples with whom you can find fellowship. The church doesn't have to be huge to be effective. And it doesn't the church doesn't have to be expensive to be a church. That's an American idea that's gone to seed. It's uncontrollable. It's a wildfire. This notion that you have to be part of a big multi-site campus church with thousands of members 
to be certain that you're in on the happening thing that God's doing in the world. And that's a lie. Find people with whom you share a kindred spirit and make a commitment to them. Ask that they make a commitment to you and then grow together in the Lord. And realize, again, you have no obligation to fellowship with mean Christians. I hope that's been helpful to you. It's been helpful to me. These are the things that we talk about on these podcasts. Our goal in this series of podcasts, and in, 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 indeed in my ministry, the Encounter Recovery Ministries, is to leave the 99 and reach out to the one, the one who's drifted away from the flock, the one who feels isolated through abuse, uh, neglect, Something's happened where they've suffered spiritual abuse or some cult-like activity in the church. So if you're one of those, I want you to know that we care about you. If you're one of those who's feeling isolated and estranged from the church, or if you've been abused and you're suffering from that, we're glad you've joined us. We're glad you're here. We want to be a a point of advocacy for you. We want you to know that you're not crazy. If you're a member of a large church and you look around on Sundays and go, boy, I just I just don't seem to fit in here. Don't be hard on yourself. I don't know how anybody in their right mind could fit into most of what calls itself Western Christianity these days. But don't despair either. The gospel is still true. Christ has not forgotten you. He knows you. And all we need to do together is to resensitize our ears and our hearts and mind to the voice of our shepherd and let him lead us out of any desert that we find ourselves. And he will. We want to be helpful to you like that. We want to be one voice among many, that advocates for your recovery and for the restoration of a joyful, living spirituality in the Spirit as you serve Christ with a great gladness. May the Lord comfort you and strengthen you in His presence. Thank you for joining us. Amen.